and welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. Today's story takes place mostly in May of the year 1945. At this time, Adolf Hitler had just committed suicide on April 30th. And the last remnants of the Nazi regime have fallen back into Tyrol, which is a region of Austria, a very mountainous alpine region. A lot of these folks are Waffen-SS troops, right? the hardcore Nazi true believers who are going to fight on to the bitter end. But a lot of these folks, like a lot of the folks in all the armies in World War II didn't really have a choice. They had been drafted. And now, seeing that the regime was more or less dead, a lot of these folks took the opportunity to get rid of their uniforms, slip back into civilian clothes, and make their escape as best they could. Of course... A lot of these SS units were tasked with catching deserters and executing them on the spot. These same SS units would execute civilians who displayed a white flag and tried to surrender to the Allies. And a lot of these German deserters, as well as local people, have joined the local Austrian resistance. They are literally fighting for survival against the SS, waiting for the American army to roll in. Rumors tell of a mountain fortress in this area, where the Nazis will be able to hold out for months. And while those rumors are false, there is no such impregnable fortress that can withstand all of the Allied armies for months. But there is a castle in this area, Castle Itter. And the story I'm about to tell is the story of the last battle of World War II in Europe, the Battle of Castle Itter. In this battle, for the only time in the war, American and German troops would fight side by side. This is a story about transcending nationalism to do the right thing. And almost all of this, by the way, is taken from the book The Last Battle by Stephen Harding, published in 2013. This is the only long-form English-language source on the subject. Other than that book, there are some articles online. Uh, you can find some quotes and anecdotes about the fight in uh, the diaries of some of these survivors. But even then, much of that material is not available in English in whole. So we're relying a lot on Harding today. Schloss Eder, Castle Eder, was built in the 900s, but the site had been fortified since at least the 800s. And from that point, the castle was passed back and forth between various nobles and bishops and expanded at various points. Uh, it was 
a somewhat important castle, not because of the village it was in, the village of Eter is a small village, but because it commands a mountain pass uh, with a ravine near the city of Virgil, which is a major regional city there in Austria. Amongst other historical events that happened there throughout its history, in 1590, the courtyard would host the last witch burning in the Tyrol region. Around this time, the words of the poet Dante Alighieri would be engraved in German over one of the entryways. Gib alle Hoffnung auf die du hier eintrittst. That is, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Later on, Castellieder would belong to the Holy Roman Emperor himself before coming into the possession of none other than Napoleon Bonaparte, after which it fell into disrepair during the 1800s. In the late 1800s, it would come into the possession of a famous pianist named Sophie Mentor. Among other guests she hosted there were her mentor, the composer Franz Liszt, and actually Tchaikovsky would spend some time there as well. But the castle proved to be a bit expensive to maintain for Sophie Mentor, so she would sell it to a German businessman in 1902. Uh, and he would install plumbing and electric lights, and he turned the old castle into a ski resort. And so it would remain until the year 1938, when... The Germans annexed Austria. Right, Hitler basically just came in and took the country. Uh, and in 1940, uh, the Nazis would take out a lease on the castle. And for the next two years, it would be used for mysterious purposes. We're not really sure. Probably interrogations. In 1942, Castle Eder would very briefly become the Austrian headquarters for the German Alliance for Combating the Dangers of Tobacco. And that's actually what this group did. They were not some crazy Nazi plot. They were just the anti-tobacco part of the German government. Uh, but they wouldn't run the castle for very long. Uh, in November of 1942, Heinrich Himmler himself uh, would commandeer the castle and attach it to the nearby concentration camp at Dachau. Now, there were different types of German concentration camps. Some were work camps and some were execution camps. And Dachau was an execution camp, right? It was for exterminating Jews and gypsies and other ethnic minorities and disabled people and etc., etc., the kinds of people the Nazis were killing. But Castle Eder would not be used for that purpose. Himmler had a special use in mind for this castle. It was to become a prison for what the Nazis called honor prisoners. These were foreign VIPs who the Nazis had captured, mostly uh, senior French government officials from before the war. Uh, and these people were valuable as hostages. Uh, maybe at some point Hitler could even release them after the war is over just to show what a great guy he is. Right? These are not the kind of prisoners you kill. 
even if you're the Nazis, right? They're too valuable. Uh, and for this reason, the honor prisoners can't be kept at Dachau. That is a dark, evil place. They are instead to be kept in relatively decent conditions in comfort. Uh, and so, uh, beginning in April of 1943, the castle was once again uh, refitted. Food storage areas are installed in the basements, uh, guard quarters on the first floor, and the upstairs guest rooms right, from the ski resort days, uh, those are converted into VIP cells. Right, they're comfortable, but they've got bars on the doors and windows, and in case anyone needs to be locked away in isolation, some of them actually have their own separate uh, toilets and showers installed. Now, like many medieval castles, a castle eater consists of an inner keep and an outer wall with a gatehouse. So, whilst all of these facilities are being installed in the main castle in the inner keep, uh, the walls are reinforced. A uh, couple of machine gun emplacements are built just in case they have to shoot down any escaping prisoners. Uh, floodlights are installed inside to make it harder for anybody to sneak out, and uh, concertina wire uh, is laid out in the surrounding areas. And this is actually a very good place to house prisoners because the castle is difficult to escape. It sits on a steep slope, so there's a sort of steep ground uh, going up on one side and down on the other. Very little area for anyone to hide, and then cutting across the front of the castle, there's a ravine which goes under the single access road. So there's only one way in and out, really. Well, on April 25th, 1943, the job is more or less complete, and the prisoner work crew, right, all the laborers were prisoners from the concentration camp, well, they're moved off to another job. But one man stays behind, and he is the first character in our story, a man named Zvonimir Chuchkovitz. Chuchkovitz is an electrical technician. Uh, he's from Croatia. And when the Nazis had invaded Yugoslavia, Chuchkovitz had joined the anti-Nazi resistance. Uh, but he had then been arrested and taken to Dachau for liquidation. But he was such a skilled electrician and he was fluent in German, that he turned out to be quite useful to the Nazis. And this skill earned him a new lease on life. He was assigned to one of these work details. So, instead of being slaughtered at Dachau, he would remain at Castle Eder as the resident handyman. And much of what we know about the events at the castle comes from Chuchkovitz's notes. He took voluminous notes uh, in Croatian and German uh, during his entire time there. And at this point, with the conversion done, the new castle prison uh, is put under the command of an SS officer named Sebastian Wimmer. Wimmer is a former police officer uh, who joined the SS before the war started. He is a true believer in the Nazi cause. A lot of these guys were just opportunists. 
who were moving up in whatever way uh, they saw that they were able to. From what we could tell, uh, Vimmer appears to have been a true believer. And he had actually won his claim to fame by rounding up Czech dissidents before the war. After Germany had annexed the Sudetenland, uh, part of Czechoslovakia, uh, a lot of uh, local non-German people were in the resistance, and Wimmer had been responsible in part for getting rid of those folks. Well, a week later, on May 2nd, 1943, Chuchkovitz is present for the arrival of the first prisoners. And these include three of the most powerful of the early war French leaders. Uh, that is, former Prime Minister Edouard Deladier, General Maurice Gamelin, who had been responsible for France's defense in the opening days of the war, and a man named Leon Juho, who was head of France's largest trade union. And over the next few months, additional prisoners would trickle in. Now, I'm not going to name all of them, just the most notable. There's another former prime minister, a man named Paul Reynaud, who is a rival of Deladier's. The two would rarely speak, and uh, if they did, they were usually arguing. Uh, there's Michel Clemenceau a decorated officer and son of the former Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau. There is François Delaroque, who is a French fascist minister who had turned coat and was acting as an Allied spy and got caught. And others are brought in due to their personal connections. These include Charles de Gaulle's sister and brother-in-law. They're not important in their own right, but... Charles de Gaulle is still off fighting the Nazis in France, so these are sort of hostages. And there are also younger female companions of Renault and uh, Juho. And uh, one of them actually came to the castle voluntarily uh, to be with him. The last notable person who was there was a tennis star named uh, Jean Barotra. Barotra was known as the Bounding Basque. Uh, he was a tennis player, held a number of titles in the 1930s, and then when the Vichy regime took over in France, he became the director of the Commission of General Education and Sports under the new regime. Now, you might be asking yourself, why is this collaborationist here in the VIP prisoner camp? Well, he took the job for the Vichy regime, but he was unwilling to cooperate with the Nazis in any way. For instance, he would not exclude Jews from sports, and in protest to the Nazis' segregated sports, uh, he refused to allow French teams to compete with German teams. And of course, this was unacceptable to the Nazis, so he was fired. And then, uh, while attempting to flee France to neutral Spain, he was captured by the Gestapo and arrested. And all of these folks will have small parts to play in the story, but Barotra probably has the largest role of any of these prisoners. And for the time being, the prisoners are treated well. They are allowed to roam the castle during the day. They just have to go back to their cells at night, and they're not allowed to leave the castle without an escort, but 
Even then, sometimes they're allowed to go into town, do a little shopping, uh, with, with a guard with them, of course. Uh, and uh, Vimmer even gifts them uh, some cognac, some very nice cognac, and they're able to drink that in the evenings before going back to bed. So if you're going to be in a Nazi prison, Castle Itter is not a terrible place to be, at least at this time. See, as the war goes on, it becomes obvious to the prisoners that the Germans are losing. And as long as the Germans are doing well, they don't really have to worry, at least not for themselves, certainly for other people and for their countries. But if Germany is losing the war, maybe Hitler is going to decide to take out some of these hostages or use them as bargaining chips. It becomes obvious that the Germans are losing because the material conditions in the castle deteriorate. The electric lights are no longer used. They're replaced by lanterns and candles. Wimmer has air raid sirens installed. And uh, 27 combat-hardened SS troops join the other guards for some further clearing of the area. They remove a whole bunch of trees... Uh, from the surrounding slopes to get a wider field of view, and they build more machine gun emplacements around the castle. And things take a turn for the worse in the summer of 1944. At that time, Wimmer has an awakening of sorts. He goes to Munich for the funeral of his brother, who had been killed in an Allied air raid. And while he's there, right outside of the funeral home, there's another air raid, and an Allied bomb falls on the funeral home, which is blown up in front of him with his brother's body inside. He doesn't even get to see the casket. And from that point on, Wimmer seems to have come to the realization that the Nazi regime's days were ended. His demeanor changes, and instead of this courteous, if vaguely threatening, host, he becomes a very angry drunk. And I'm going to quote now from Harding, describing Wimmer's behavior during this time period. Quote, Schloss Itter's commander increasingly sought to alleviate his demoralization with alcohol, often drinking steadily from morning until late at night. Prisoners and guards alike tried to avoid Wimmer any time after noon. Though he was usually calm for the first few hours after opening a bottle of Asbach Jurolt, Later in the day, his true nature would reveal itself in screaming rages and random violence. While the SSTV officer generally didn't focus his alcohol-fueled anger on his VIP charges, he had no compunctions about tormenting the number prisoners. Those are the other prisoners who were working at the castle but are not VIPs. Uh, one of his favorite targets was Zvanko Chuchkovitz. While Wimmer would occasionally treat the Croat handyman with something approaching kindness, his more usual attitude is illustrated by two incidents that occurred during the winter of 1944 through 1945. In the first, 
Chuchkovitz was working on Vimmer's staff car in the small courtyard between the castle's front gate and the Schlosshof, when the SSTV officer staggered up to him and, without saying a word, punched the Croat in the face. Knowing well that any reaction would only further enrage the drunken Vimmer, Chuchkovitz said nothing and quickly snapped to attention. The castle's commandant nevertheless hit him again and was about to punch the Croat a third time when he realized that Maurice Scamlan, out for his daily constitutional, had walked right up behind him. Vimmer saluted the French general, who returned a withering glare and said, You cannot beat a prisoner, before turning his back and walking away. Vimmer staggered off, muttering to himself, and didn't leave his suite for two days. The second incident was potentially more dangerous for Chuchkovitz. Just after a particularly heavy snowfall, a seriously inebriated Vimmer summoned the Croat to the guardroom and began screaming at him for not repairing a leaking toilet in the Commandant's suite. Chuchkovitz tried to explain that he'd ordered the necessary rubber washer from the supply depot at Dachau, but it hadn't yet arrived. Vimmer shrieked that he wasn't interested in excuses and ordered the Croat to spend the next two nights shoveling snow in the rear courtyard from 6 p.m. until 6 a.m. Had it not been for the occasional help provided by the two SS enlisted men who'd been tasked to watch him, their assistance most probably an attempt to curry favor as Germany spiraled ever closer to defeat, Chuchkovitz might well have died of exhaustion or exposure. Vimmer's outbursts increased in both frequency and virulence as the Allied armies got closer to Schloss Itter. Fortunately for Chuchkovitz, one of the worst wasn't aimed at him. On March 20, 1945, the Croat was again working on the Commandant's staff car when Gertrude, one of the female number prisoners, ran up to him with the news that Vimmer was about to shoot Andreas Krobot. That's the castle's cook. Rushing to the castle's scullery, Chuchkovitz found a scene of pandemonium. An obviously drunken Vimmer was pointing his Walter P-38 pistol out an open window at the terrified Czech cook, who was standing in the middle of the castle's small vegetable garden. All of the female prisoners who worked in the kitchen were standing to one side, sobbing loudly, as Vimmer screamed at Krabat, You dog! Come one step forward and one to the left, apparently trying to line up a better shot. Chuchkovitz grabbed a large knife from a nearby rack determined to kill the commandant if he shot Krabat, but the sudden appearance of Vimmer's wife diffused the situation before any blood was spilled. Unquote. And it's around this time that Castle Eater starts serving yet another purpose for the Nazis. As the Allied troops close in on Germany, it becomes a way station for SS commanders fleeing from the Allies and escaping into exile. Right, these are all senior people who know they're going to be executed uh, if they're captured. And perhaps the most notable of these particular visitors is SS Lieutenant Colonel Wilhelm Edward Vieter, the commandant of the Dachau concentration camp. On April 30th, 1945, the same day that Hitler decided to eat a bullet, Vieter orders the death of 2,000 prisoners before fleeing Dachau to Castle Itter to try and get out of the country. But by now, it's too late. The area is surrounded, and on May 2nd, two days later, 
Veter takes his own life by shooting himself first in the heart and then again behind his ear when the first shot did not kill him quickly enough. This event shakes the prisoners to their core. Right, Vimmer, the commandant of Castle Litter, is already drunk and unstable, and it's obvious that any day now, Allied troops are going to arrive. It occurs to some of the prisoners that the Allied troops probably don't know that Castle Litter is there, and that it's a prison with a bunch of VIP prisoners, and if they can get a message out, their chances of being rescued are much better. So the very next day after Vitor's suicide, uh, the French prisoners managed to pull Chuchkovitz to the side, and they ask him if he can carry a message to nearby American troops to ask for rescue. Chuchkovitz at this point is treated sort of like a prison trustee almost. He's allowed to come and go uh, even without being under guard. He's trusted. So he makes an excuse to Vimmer that he has to ride his bicycle uh, down into Virgil, right? that's uh, the nearby uh, larger city near Castle Litter, that he has to ride down into Virgil to buy a few electrical parts to make some repairs. But unbeknownst to Vimmer, Chuchkovitz is going to try and find some allied troops. So he goes right through Virgil and keeps on going, and he ultimately travels over 35 miles. During this ride, he has to talk his way past a pair of SS roadblocks, and he's able to do that by sort of dropping Vimmer's name and saying he's on a mission for the commandant of Castle Itter, and eventually he finds himself in no man's land. There are no SS troops, there are no civilians, there are some dead bodies, both soldiers and civilians, on the side of the road, and Chuchkovitz realizes that he's in no man's land. He has to keep going. He has to find the Americans. So he eventually reaches Innsbruck, and there he sees a whole bunch of American tanks and uh, infantry, and it turns out he has run right into the lead elements of the 103rd Infantry Division. And... Unfortunately, he doesn't speak English, uh, but the message from the French prisoners was written in English, so he finds an American officer and gives the officer this English-language message. The officer reads it and immediately recognizes its importance and finds somebody who can get the whole story from Chuchkovitz. So, ultimately, Chuchkovitz is able to sit down with a Yugoslav-American civilian interpreter and fully explain what's going on down at the castle. Well, unfortunately for the prisoners, the American troops who Chuchkovitz ran into are just the lead elements of the American army. These are literally the first guys on the ground, and they're 35 miles away. Their unit commander's not even going to arrive in Innsbruck until the next morning. They will not be able to do anything until then. So, Chuchkovitz... Uh, basically, uh, is given a hot meal and a place to sleep and wait until the commander gets there. And that night, the night of May 3rd, back at Castle Itter, 
Commandant Vimmer and his wife drive away in his car, and they never return. The next morning, May 4th, realizing that the Commandant has just up and run off, the guards also abandon their posts and join some retreating Wehrmacht troops that are leaving the area. Now the prisoners are alone in the castle, technically free in a sense, but unable to actually get out, right? The entire surrounding area is still full of SS roadblocks, and it's only going to be a matter of time before somebody decides to investigate what's going on up at the castle. By this time, as we mentioned, uh, this area is one of the last pockets of Nazi resistance. Patton's army has cut off Tyrol from the north, while Allied troops are also advancing from the south up from Italy. And we mentioned that the German defenders were fighting not just Allied troops, uh, but also the Austrian resistance. What is going on with that resistance? Well, the Austrian resistance was unable to get international help for a long time. And the reason for this was that Austria did not have a government in exile. Right? For instance, the French and Polish had governments in exile. There was someone in Great Britain with whom a resistance group could communicate and coordinate, right? You saw the French resistance step up their efforts big time right before the D-Day invasion, right? That was coordinated. The Austrian resistance didn't have that kind of contact, right? They had been peacefully annexed prior to World War II, so they weren't even able to make contact with the major Allied governments until December of 1944. That's fairly late in the game. They have not uh, been able to get any weapons from the Allies, but now the Nazi regime is so weak that uh, even the Austrian resistance is able to flex some muscle. Right? They can't do much actual fighting. Uh, the few real weapons they get come from you know, sympathetic Austrian soldiers who are deserting. Mostly what they have are like hunting rifles and birding shotguns. But the resistance in Virgil in particular, right, this city near Castle Itter, gets help from an unexpected source. And that is a man named uh, Joseph Sepp Gangel. Sepp is his nickname. And Sepp Gangel was a model German officer. Early in the war, he served as an artillery lieutenant in the invasion of Belgium and the Netherlands, and he performed well enough that he was made an instructor with a training battalion. And from there, when the Germans invaded Russia in Operation Barbarossa, he went and served on that front, and he won the Iron Cross. He actually won it twice. The first time he won it because his unit's uh, accurate fire uh, saved a German infantry regiment from being overrun by Soviet troops. There is unfortunately no record of why he won the second Iron Cross. 
But after that, Gengel was ultimately reassigned to an experimental rocket artillery regiment, which served first in Russia and then was moved to the Normandy coast uh, in preparation for the D-Day invasion. Right, the Germans didn't know exactly when or exactly where the Allies were going to land, but they expected an invasion of France sometime that summer. Not only did Gangel fight in the Normandy invasion, but he fought again in the Ardennes Offensive, which we Americans know as the Battle of the Bulge. By March 1945, Gangel had been promoted to major, and he was given command of his own brigade. But this late in the war, the German military units, in reality, were nothing like their hypothetical paper strength. In this case, the brigade consisted of a single rocket battery. And within a couple of months, right by the beginning of May, Gangel's brigade had slipped into Tyrol with other retreating German troops. But by now, Gangel had become disillusioned. Right, he was a soldier in the Wehrmacht. He was never, as far as we can tell, a true believer in the Nazi cause. He was a soldier. And the things he saw from the SS during these last few months of the war, well, they deeply disturbed him. He found out about the concentration camps and about what was going on there. He saw SS troops shooting civilians who were hanging out white flags in preparation to surrender. He didn't sign up for this. So when... Gangel and his brigade arrive in Virgil. Rather than continue fleeing with the rest of the Wehrmacht troops, they decide they're going to stay in Virgil, and they're going to help the resistance defend themselves from the SS divisions that are moving into the area. And their biggest concern at the moment is an order by Heinrich Himmler that had come out on April 30th, again, the day of Hitler's suicide. And this order said, quote, All male persons inhabiting a house showing a white flag will be shot. No hesitation in executing these orders can be permitted any longer. Male persons who are considered to be responsible in this respect are those aged 14 years or over. Unquote. Gangel is, right now, working with the local Austrian resistance to put together some sort of defense against the SS. And he is aware of the French VIPs at the castle. But as far as he knows, their commandant is still there, and he has some time, right? He can go recover them covertly after the local civilians in Virgil have been protected. But at 11 a.m. on May 4th, a man on a bicycle rides into Virgil. This man is a man named Andreas Krobot, the Czech cook from Castle Itter. 
Right, it's been a whole day now, and nobody's heard from Chuchkovitz, so the prisoners had asked Crobot to go out from the castle and seek help, and the first person he runs into is Gangle. And he tells Gangle that the prisoners are in imminent danger from SS troops. Right, the SS are in the area now. They're sweeping the roads for deserters now. As a matter of fact, Crobot had to sneak past some on his way to Virgil. But sooner or later, those patrols are going to notice the big empty castle with no commandant and no guards. Technically, there is a commandant now, actually. See, Vimmer left the castle in command of an SS captain named Kurt Siegfried Schrader. Now, Schrader is an interesting character. He lives in Itter Village, actually, just right outside the castle, so he was a logical person to take over. But early in the war, he had participated in some of the atrocities in Eastern Europe. Since then, though, his wife has had two children. He has also been badly injured in the war. And he has become disillusioned with the Third Reich. All he wants to do now is protect his family. He's managed to go on leave because he's legitimately disabled from his war injuries. He walks with a cane, and he lives in Itter Village. And over the past year, he's actually spent some time at the castle, visiting not just with Commandant Vimmer, but also with the prisoners. He's even been so bold as to talk politics with them and openly criticize the Nazi regime. So he has the prisoners' trust, as well as at least being someone who can appeal to the hardcore Nazis in the area. But even his rank is not going to be enough to stop the SS from taking the castle if they want it, if they decide they're going to make a stand there against the Americans, right? The prisoners have also armed themselves. When the German troops left, a lot of them left their weapons, and the armory is quite full. So the prisoners are at least able to you know, put up some kind of defense, but they, they won't be able to stand up to any kind of SS assault, right? These are mostly a bunch of old men and women. Uh, the prisoners have also taken measures to protect themselves from any Allied air attacks. They have hung a giant French tricolor flag on the inside walls of the castle, so surrounding SS patrols can't see it, but any Allied bombers coming overhead will see a giant French flag and hopefully not drop any bombs there. But that's about all the prisoners have been able to do. They can't even really go out into Itter Village because there's some SS guys hanging around there. So, you know, fearing the worst that Chuchkovitz had been killed by some patrols, they had sent Crobot out for help. Now, Gangle finds himself in an impossible situation, right? He has taken it upon himself to defend the civilians in the city of Virgil, and he can't do that and simultaneously defend Castle Itter. Even now, there's an SS platoon in another neighborhood in the city raiding a resistance weapons cache and threatening to shoot some women who just happened to be in the area. So Gangle decides that as the de facto military commander for Virgil, 
his best choice is to go and surrender to the Americans. And rather than send out another civilian on a bicycle, he decides that he's going to go do this himself in person. So he and his one of his enlisted men, uh, they take a Kubel wagon, which is basically a German jeep, and they sneak across the front lines. They manage to get past the SS, and uh, when they feel that they're getting close to the Americans, they hang a white flag from the antenna on the Kubel wagon and uh, enter the village of Kufstein. Now, the village is apparently deserted until they round a corner and find themselves literally face-to-face with four American M4 Sherman tanks. Well, here are the Americans. Uh, Gangle immediately offers his personal surrender to the tank company commander, a man named Captain Jack Lee. And Gangle also delivers another one of these English-language letters that the prisoners have written asking for help. Lee gets into his tank and radios his battalion commander, and he comes out smiling. And his men know this means they're going to see some action. See, Jack Lee is an old-school cavalryman. He loves a good fight. He is a hard-drinking, hard-fighting Nebraska boy who's already been in several of the major battles coming across Europe, and here in these final days of the war, he's glad he gets to have one more fight. Now, we should mention here that some of his men are disappointed at this. Uh, Nobody wants to be the last person to die in the war, and They had been digging in, preparing defensive positions, and rumor has it that the Germans are going to surrender within the day anyway. So a lot of these guys are already drinking and celebrating uh, the imminent Allied victory. But Lee has received permission from his battalion commander to proceed as he sees fit. But this is, after all, a German officer he is dealing with. What if this is some kind of trick? So rather than put his entire unit in jeopardy, Lee takes a bold move. He tells Gangle that he's going to come with, along with one of his own enlisted guys, in the Kubel wagon, and they're going to go reconnoiter the castle together. Gangle agrees, so the Americans remove their helmets, which would attract unwanted attention from the SS. They take off their helmets, get in the back seat of the Kubel wagon, and uh, once again, Gangle's driver manages to get them all across the front lines back into Virgil without any kind of incident. And there, uh, after seeing the defenses in the city of Virgil, uh, Lee formally accepts Gangle's surrender. And he allows Gangle's men to keep their weapons and actually gives them responsibility for protecting Virgil civilians. Great, this is just what Gangle wanted. Now can we please go look at the castle? And that's what they do. They drive on to Castle Itter, and when they arrive, they are initially met by armed Frenchmen who have just seen a German Kubelwagen come up with two German soldiers in the front. Uh, Lee identifies himself as an American, uh, 
Everything's cleared up pretty quickly, and he and Gangle inspect the fortifications and meet with the VIPs. Meanwhile, Chuchkovitz is also finally getting help. Uh, this same day, right, May 4th, he awakens, and as promised, he is able to meet with a uh, German-speaking American officer, a man named Major John Kramers. And Kramers agrees that he's going to come relieve Castle Itter. Kramers gathers a small force of infantry along with three M4 tanks, and they start proceeding south, but they come to a village where there is an SS unit that has some anti-tank guns. This is stiffer resistance than Kramers expected, uh, so he's forced to return back to Innsbruck to put together a larger force. This larger force uh, consists of tank destroyers instead of tanks. Those are lighter armored vehicles that still have cannons on the front. Uh, and he also gets some jeeps with mounted 50 caliber machine guns. And uh, he also brings a separate truck for evacuating the prisoners. This is a much better plan, but... Now there's no way they're going to be able to leave on May 4th. So Chuchkovitz has managed to summon help, but help isn't going to arrive until late in the day on May 5th. Anyway, returning to Jack Lee and Sepgangle on the afternoon of May 4th, uh, even as uh, Kramer's force is being forced to turn back, uh, they return from Castle Eater to Kufstein to collect Lee's men and his tanks. But unfortunately, control of the area has already been turned over to another division. Most of Lee's men aren't even there anymore. Uh, and Lee needs to meet with their commander to explain the situation and round up more troops. And ultimately, he's able to take two of his original M4 tanks. These include his own tank, the Besatin Jenny who we'll get to know a little bit throughout the story, as well as his second-in-command's tank, the Bosch Buster. And as this force is being assembled, along with some infantry and uh, five other tanks, uh, white stars uh, are painted on Gengel's Kubelwagen uh, to let everybody know that it's actually on the Allied side now. And... Uh, this force then proceeds back towards Castle Itter to reinforce the defenders until the you know, rest of the Allied army can come in. But along the way, they come to a bridge that nearly gives out after about half of the force had crossed. So three of the reinforcement tanks and their attached infantry, they have to turn back. When the column finally reaches Virgil, uh, they confer with the local resistance, and the resistance asks Lee for more help, and Lee agrees to leave the other two reinforcement tanks in Virgil. Uh, they're not going to be terribly useful defending a castle. Uh, what's going to be more helpful is what Gangle is able to provide in return. Uh, he brings along ten of his artillerymen. So Lee and Gangle's relief force now consists of two Sherman tanks, 14 American infantrymen, and uh, 10 Germans in a Kubel wagon and a truck. On the way from Virgil to the castle, they run into another problem. Uh, there is a bridge that has been wired with explosives by the SS. And 
if the SS were to blow this bridge, it would cut off access to the castle completely. So uh, Lee orders the Bosch Buster and her crew to stay behind at the bridge to disarm all the explosives. And then on their way up to the castle, the remaining column, they actually have to shoot their way past an SS roadblock uh, just to get to the castle access road. The SS is now aware of the castle and is trying to cordon off the area. Well, Lee decides that he's going to use the Besotten Jenny, his tank, as a defensive position. So when they get to the access road to Castle Itter, he sort of waves Gangle and his guys to go ahead across the bridge over the ravine, and he orders all of his own men, except uh, his tank driver, to also go across the bridge. They all cross the bridge up to the castle, and uh, then Lee orders his driver to turn the tank around. This is a narrow road. The tank has to literally turn in place with one track moving forward while the other goes backward very slowly until uh, the tank can now be backed across the bridge. Lee does this because the armor on the front of the tank is much stronger than the armor on the rear of the tank, and he wants the front of his tank facing uh, the enemy. Now, this bridge is an old steel and concrete span, and it's just fine for, like, local delivery trucks, but it's not made to hold the weight of a tank. And this is why Lee had sent Gangle and all of his troops across before the tank, because if this bridge gives out, there's not going to be another way in or out of the castle, and Incidentally, uh, Lee and his driver will almost certainly be dead after the fall. The bridge starts to buckle as they're driving across some of the spans. Uh, The uh, individual steel supports uh, do not hold up. Chunks of concrete break off and fall into the ravine, but amazingly, the bridge holds, and... uh, Lee is able to have his driver back the besotten Jenny right up into the castle's gatehouse. Jack Lee hops out of his tank, and he meets with Kurt Schrader, right, that SS officer with the cane, uh, who has rounded up about a dozen Germans uh, around Itter Village and established some rudimentary defenses. He's basically got some guys on lookout in the top of the keep, and he does not have good news. SS troops, including at least two anti-tank guns, are already moving in from all sides. There is an assault coming, almost certainly imminently. At hearing this news, Lee immediately orders the VIPs to get into the basement for their own protection. Some of the men protest. Remember, some of them are generals, and almost all of them had served in World War I. They protest, uh, but Lee reminds them that he's in command and that they're important people, and it's their duty to stay alive to help post-war France. 
and once he's talked them down and they're all down in the basement safe, Lee, Gangle, and Schrader confer and come up with a plan of defense. The castle is safe on three sides due to sitting on a relatively steep slope. Those sides are very easily defended, but it's exposed at the front, obviously, right where the access road is. Uh, and Lee realizes that he's actually made a little bit of a mistake uh, by backing the besotten Jenny all the way up into the gatehouse. Uh, the machine guns on the tank are not able to get a clear field of fire to the left or the right. So he orders the tank moved forward a few feet, so those machine guns will be able to cover the whole front of the castle. Uh, and he also has one of the guns removed and mounted on top of the gatehouse itself. Now the gatehouse has double gates, right? Gates on the outside and on the inside, and there's also a sally port uh, to one side that needs to be covered, hence the gun on the roof. Uh, this gatehouse had been heavily reinforced by Vimmer when the castle was first converted into a prison, uh, so it's going to be the main point of defense manned by Lee's American soldiers. And then the German troops under Gangle are going to man the walls and try to keep any anti-tank crews from flanking the besotten Jenny. And then Schrader is going to be up in the keep with uh, some men in the windows providing cover from above. Uh, pretty basic plan uh, for a pretty basic defense. And then they also make uh, a provisional plan to fall back to the keep uh, if the SS soldiers manage to get through the gatehouse. Uh, they're basically going to defend this castle medieval style. As a matter of fact, there are a couple of men positioned in towers uh, to the sides of the gatehouse, uh, shooting through uh, the arrow slits, basically, which were made for a similar purpose, right? To provide a field of fire across the approaching road. Well, here you have uh, modern forces fighting in a medieval castle. And if the SS get through, they're going to fall back to the keep, but it hasn't come to that yet. After this conference and coming up with this plan, Lee tries to get some rest. He's not able to sleep for long. At 4 a.m., he is awakened by the familiar clatter of the Jenny's 30 caliber machine gun. He runs out of his room and over to the Jenny and talks to the gunner, and it turns out that this was just a small enemy probing attack. Uh, a couple of SS soldiers were creeping up close to the castle uh, with some grappling hooks, and uh, they had scattered right after the gun fired. Uh, Lee tells his men, good job, stay alert, and... Uh, since he's up anyway, he decides to go check on the rest of the castle, and he goes over to the keep and walks into the great hall, which is the large room in the bottom of the keep, and there he finds all the French VIPs. As it turns out, uh, it was cold in the basement, there's no heating down there, and the great hall has a fireplace, so they had come up to keep warm. And... Uh, Lee reluctantly agrees to let them stay for now, 
but he orders them to keep clear of the windows and to go downstairs back in the basement if there's more gunfire. At 6 a.m., Lee has not gotten any sleep. He's off in the keep chatting with Gangle when there's more gunfire, this time from inside the keep. And a bunch of return gunfire hits the keep. Uh, Lee hears the uh, 50 caliber gun on the tank going off, and uh, he and Gangle run towards the gunfire inside the keep, and uh, turns out what had happened was a young Austrian private had spotted some SS troops sneaking up to a wall, and rather than fire carefully or shout down to the Americans on the tank, he had simply opened the window and unloaded the entire clip from his... Uh, submachine gun, and appears none of this fire had been successful. The SS troops had also missed, and then uh, when the Jenny started firing, uh, the SS troops, uh, those guys had once again gone away. This was another probing attack. But some of the bullets just narrowly missed Edouard Deladier, that former French prime minister. Uh, he was out walking around the courtyard like he did every morning, against Lee's orders, of course. For now, the castle is once again safe, but these were just probing attacks. Right? This small defense force cannot sustain a prolonged attack by all of the SS at once. And meanwhile, help is slow in coming on this morning of May 5th. There are some troops following in Lee's path towards Virgil. Uh, these are troops under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Marvin Coyle. It's a fairly large force, and it should be close enough to help by midday, but unfortunately, they're held up first by an SS roadblock that needs to be cleared away, and then by a blown bridge, which has to be uh, repaired, and that sets them back several hours. Meanwhile, uh, Kramers, right, the uh, fellow who uh, Chuchkovitz had met up with, well, he's also on his way to help with a substantial force, but when they're halfway to Castle Itter, uh, they get a call on the radio from a military bureaucrat uh, chastising them for crossing over into another unit's area of operation. Basically, they were messing around in somebody else's backyard, and this isn't quite the uh, bureaucratic nonsense it sounds like. There's a reason uh, troops have assigned areas of operation. Right? If you see a column moving in the distance and it's not one of your guys, you know it's the enemy. You have different units crossing back and forth. Uh, you can get friendly fire. The military commanders don't want that here in the final days of the war, especially. But Kramers understands how important it is that these uh, VIPs are protected and evacuated. So he returns most of his troops as he's ordered, but he himself continues towards Itter in a jeep uh, with one other American and a French liaison officer, uh, plus Chuchkovitz and uh, two journalists who are following in another jeep. And all this group has for weapons are three submachine guns and three Colt 45 pistols. That is not exactly what they mean when they say the cavalry is coming. 
Back at the castle, shortly after 8 a.m., disaster strikes. A German soldier deserts the defenders. He throws a rope over the wall, shimmies down, and runs off across the ravine and into the village to join the SS. He knows exactly how many men, weapons, and ammunition the defenders have, he knows how they're deployed, and he knows their plans. And worse, while the Americans had shot at him and missed, none of the Germans in the castle even fired at him while he was running. Lee is angry. Uh, he and Gangle have a private conversation. We don't know what was said, uh, but we do know that Gangle came out and talked to his own men afterwards and sternly reminded them that their best hope of surviving the war was to stick with the Allies from here on out. Shortly after this soldier defected, the SS deploy a pair of anti-tank guns on the opposing ridge, and infantry also begin deploying en masse uh, near the village. As it turns out, uh, this is an extermination mission from the SS High Command. If the Nazis can't win the war, they're going to take all their hostages out with them. Realizing that the assault is going to happen at any minute, uh, Lee mentions in passing that they could call for help if only the Jenny's radio wasn't broken. He has a technician in the tank trying to fix the radio, but for now he can't talk to the other Americans. And Schrader overhears him and says, why don't we just use the telephone? See, as it turns out, there is a telephone in the Commandant's suite connected to the city of Virgil. And... They're able to call Virgil and get a hold of the resistance leader there, a man named August Mayer, and uh, Mayer is able to dispatch two more German soldiers and one 17-year-old Austrian resistance member uh, in a Kuba wagon. Three guys isn't much, but it's better than nothing, and these guys come through the village of Itter, just blaring the horn as if they're on some urgent, important mission for the SS. And amazingly, this works. The SS troops blocking the roads clear the way, and they're able to drive right up to the castle and get out and join the defenders. In addition, while uh, he's on the phone with Mayor Lee asks Mayor to make sure to get word of the castle situation to the first Americans to arrive in Virgil. Almost as soon as the three new defenders can deploy on the wall, the SS 88mm gun opens up. That's the big anti-tank gun. And it blows a hole in the side of the keep, actually uh, destroys the room where Clemenceau had been staying. So Lee's decision to have the uh, VIPs stay uh, down in the basement looks particularly wise at this point. Uh, and Schrader turns around at this point and looks in horror at the courtyard where not only are several of the VIPs at this point out just walking around, but so are his wife and kids. Uh, and he yells furiously for everybody to get down in the basement and uh, 
the uh, female hostages, prisoners, and the children get down in the basement, but the French men are sort of gathering just outside the keep, deciding what they're going to do. And seconds later, after the first 88mm gun hit the keep, a second round, a 75mm shell, strikes the Jenny's engine. Uh, this puts her out of commission and starts the engine on fire. Uh, there's actually uh, still an electrician inside trying to fix the radio. He's able to get out. Uh, the anti-tank shell literally slammed through one side of the tank, passed within inches of his leg, and then went into the engine without hitting anything that exploded. And uh, you know, he's, he has to get back into the castle, though, at this point, and uh, so do the two tank gunners who are on the machine guns on the outside of the tank because there's just too much smoke. Uh, they're forced back into the gatehouse. With the women and children safely in the basement and the besotten Jenny clearly out of commission, the French men uh, decide to act. They retrieve those weapons that they had uh, stolen from the guards, and they set to fighting right alongside the defenders. And at this point, Lee isn't able to stop them because he's too busy directing the defense. Uh, in his accounts of the event, Paul Renault says, quote, I soon saw that, as the tank was burning, the attackers could penetrate from the other side into the courtyard by the bridge, which was linked up with the flank of the mountain. I dodged into the castle. I got my tommy gun out of my trunk and went down to the front courtyard, where I found some soldiers. Clemenceau had already calmly placed himself at a loophole in case the attackers wanted to take possession of the tank. I took up a position near to him. Unquote. At the same time as these mostly elderly Frenchmen are rushing into the fight, uh, the three Americans on top of the gatehouse have to pull back and redeploy their gun elsewhere on the wall. Uh, the smoke from the tank is so thick that it's obscuring their view, they have no idea what they're shooting at. Uh, so this puts them out of commission for a couple minutes while they're moving their gun. Now... While all this is going on, there are some SS troops moving in along one of the sides of the castle. They're coming in on the high ridge to the north of the castle. Now, from there, they can actually see over the wall into parts of the courtyard. So, right, not necessarily a great place to assault the castle from, but... You know, you can put some guys up there with guns and cause a lot of trouble for the defenders. And, uh, you know, Lee and Gangle had anticipated this and had made sure everybody knew to, you know, keep your head down when you're in the courtyard, stick close to the wall. Uh, but none of the VIPs had been prepared for this because they weren't supposed to be in the fight. So Paul Renault moves into his position here, right, trying to get a clearer... Uh, shot out of the gatehouse, and this exposes him to potential enemy fire from that north slope. And the first person to notice this is Sepp Gangle, who rushes forward to try to make the former Prime Minister of France get down. But in his hurry, Gangle himself does not duck, and he is shot dead by a sniper. His body crumples, dead before he even hits the ground. 
And fire is now coming in furiously from these SS troops on the North Ridge. There are just too many of them for the few German defenders on the wall to suppress. Uh, so Lee goes up to the top of the keep to get a look around, uh, to join Schrader and coordinate the defense from there, and he leaves his subordinate, uh, Lieutenant Bass, in command of the uh, defense of the courtyard. Uh, and Bass orders the French VIPs to get up on the north wall to help the German defenders, right? If you're going to be in this fight, it, at least go where the help is needed, and amazingly, they comply. It's interesting to think of the venerable old General Gamelin, right, who had started the war in command of France's defense, fighting in the war's last battle on the walls of a German castle holding a German-made MP40. But history takes some strange turns. And while the defenders are able to keep the SS back, they soon run into another problem. They don't have enough ammunition to keep this up all day. And the first one to run out completely is uh, Jean Borotra, right, that uh, tennis star. And he runs to the keep to see if Lee and Schrader and the Germans have any to spare. And Lee tells him, I'm sorry, everybody's low. And while they're having this conversation, the phone rings. It is from the city of Virgil, and the person on the other end is none other than Major Kramers, who, with his two men and Chuchkovitz and the reporters, has made it to Virgil. And uh, Lee is able to give him the location of the castle and tell him that they need help, but before he can describe the SS offensive positions or anything like that, an explosion severs the line, and he cannot provide any more details. Now, Kramers is able to assemble a large force. Uh, it's under the overall command of Lieutenant Colonel Coyle, right, that other guy who had been following in uh, Lee's footsteps to Virgil. Well, he has arrived around the same time as Kramers, and they are also joined by the crew of Bosch Buster, Lee's second tank, uh, who are eager to rejoin their commander. Now, this force will, at this time, have to fight its way through a SS assault force, right? This is a large group of SS that have massed around the castle, somewhere around 200 men. And without any knowledge of how the SS are deployed, they're going to have to move forward cautiously. Lee knows this, the defenders know this, and Barotra, who's in the room during this whole conversation, well, he knows this. And he convinces Lee to let him make a run for it. He's going to jump out of the castle and try and get through the SS assault force and make contact with the Americans and give them the details they need to get to the castle quickly. He's athletic, uh, he's made previous escape attempts, uh, so he has some knowledge of the surrounding terrain. He says, look, I can do this. And Lee, out of options, agrees. So Barotra dresses up in some rags uh, and grabs a walking stick and a sleeping bag so he looks like a, you know, Austrian refugee. He slips over the wall, 
goes down through the ravine. Uh, when he comes up from the ravine on uh, the road on the other side, he encounters a couple of SS troops who think he's just exactly what he looks like, this refugee, and they ignore him. Uh, and as soon as they are out of sight, he starts running towards Virgil and continues running until he runs right into the Americans. And when they see him, the Americans are also fooled by the disguise. They think he's an Austrian refugee, but he is immediately recognized by a French-Canadian war correspondent who is with the American troops. That man, a man named René Levesque, who himself would go on to become the premier of Quebec, uh, well, he tells the American officers who this guy is, and Barotra is able to give them very detailed information about all the SS positions along the way, uh, which helps to speed the relief effort along. Well, by now, things are starting to get desperate in the castle. Lee has pulled his men and the French prisoners back into the keep with the rest of the Germans, and uh, two of Gangle's men have been badly wounded and are out of the fight, and pretty much everyone has virtually no ammunition left. Right? The VIPs are no longer fighting. Any ammo is being used by the professional soldiers. And those soldiers are shooting out of windows and picking their targets as an SS squad forms up on the access road near the gate with a Panzerfaust, a rocket-propelled explosive, planning to blast through it. And Edouard Delatier writes of his experience hiding out in one of these bedrooms in the keep. He says, quote, Two of the German soldiers who had come with Gangle had taken up positions with their rifles resting on the windowsills. They pointed out groups of SS soldiers firing at the castle from a few hundred yards away, near the little electric plant on the edge of the forest. The two soldiers returned the fire, and I took advantage of a moment of calm to exchange a few words with our defenders. They told me in German that they were Polish. When I told them I was French, one of them started shaking my hand while the other pulled a bottle out of his coat and offered it to me. It was a bottle of Fernet Branca. Where the devil did he get that? I drank a bit. It was really bad. Then he laughed and told me Hitler was kaput. Unquote. Before the SS can launch their final assault on the gate, just after 4 p.m., American tanks appear in Itter Village, right across from the Castle Access Road, with Boche Buster in the lead. And Delatier's guard happily cheers, Panzer! And the SS troops outside the castle scatter to the wind. Out at the gatehouse, Chuchkovitz, Borotra, the VIPs, and Andreas Krobot, the cook, as well. They're all briefly reunited. And Kurt Schrader, with his cane, walks up to the commanding American officer, snaps a salute, and formally hands over responsibility for the prisoner's safety. The American commander responsible for these prisoners, a man named George Lynch, orders them to collect their things. 
The area is still not safe, and they need to be evacuated to the 103rd Infantry Division headquarters in occupied Germany before being finally returned to France. During this brief reunion, uh, René Levesque, that French-Canadian war correspondent, uh, he notes how quickly the VIPs seem to return to normal. The two former prime ministers, Renault and Deladier, the old rivals, were sitting on opposite sides of the room, ignoring each other. And as he tries to interview both of them in this brief period before they ship out, uh, both of them tell him that they're writing a memoir and it's going to have some pretty dirty stuff in it about the other guy took them all of about five minutes to get back to their old bickering. And by 7 p.m., the VIPs would be on a truck, safely on their way to 103rd Infantry Division headquarters. Two days later, on May 7, 1945, Admiral Karl Dernitz would officially sign Germany's unconditional surrender. That surrender would become official on May 8, 1945, at 11.01 p.m. The Battle of Castle Itter was the last significant battle in the European theater of World War II. And amazingly, out of the 36 defenders, the only one to die that day was Sepp Gangel. Meanwhile, out of an estimated 200 SS attackers, about 100 were taken prisoner, and an unknown number were killed or injured. But what happened to all the survivors afterwards? Well, Barotra, upon his return to France, would face threats of being tried as a collaborationist. But he was ultimately never brought up on charges, and his public image recovered. Uh, he would compete in seniors' tournaments well into his 90s. Kramers would personally take Crobot and the other Eastern European prisoners to a United Nations camp for displaced persons from whence they can go home. Their fates are unknown. We do not have any record of what happened to Andreas Krobat the Cook or Gertrude or any of the other prisoners from Eastern Europe. We do know what happened to Chuchkovitz, though. See, the VIPs are moved out in such a rush that they end up leaving a lot of personal items behind, and Kramers asks for a volunteer to take all of that stuff to Paris to uh, return to them, and Chuchkovitz uh, immediately volunteers. So he gets to take a trip to Paris and hang out there for a couple of weeks before being repatriated to his native Yugoslavia. There he would start an electrical contracting business in the city of Belgrade, and he would work there until his death in 1984. During this time, he would compile his notes into a report on the Battle of Castle Itter, as well as what happened there before the battle, and he delivered this report to the French and the West German governments. These reports would ultimately form the basis for a book about the battle as well. 
Unfortunately, neither the notes nor the book are available in English. So we are left with other people's versions of what Chuchkovitz had to say. Castellitter itself would briefly be used as a provisional allied headquarters for the Tyrol region of Austria before being returned to the Austrian government after the war. As for Captain Lee and his subordinate, Lieutenant Bass, both would be awarded the Silver Star for bravery. But Lee's life would take a dark turn after the battle. Upon returning to the United States, Lee would spend a few years playing semi-pro football, but he never made it into the major leagues and ultimately became a bartender. And as well as being a bartender, he enjoyed imbibing, just as he had as a young man. His drinking would cost him three subsequent marriages. Ultimately, it would take his life. Without a war to keep him busy, at the age of 54, Captain Jack Lee would die of asphyxiation due to alcohol poisoning in the year 1973. Finally, what happened to the German officers at that battle? How has history treated each of their choices in the final years and days of World War II? Well, Sebastian Wimmer, the drunken, violent commander, would not manage to escape from the area. After taking off with his wife in his car, he would be captured by the Allies and imprisoned by the French. Ironically, he would be kept in a medieval castle. Now, he had committed some war crimes in Poland at the beginning of the war, as well as during his time at Dachau, but... Nonetheless, he was released in the year 1949 uh, due to intercession from some of the VIPs. Apparently, they were grateful that he did not take any of their lives. But Vimmer's heavy drinking never subsided. Maybe it was guilt from his war crimes. Maybe it was despair and disillusionment that the Nazi movement to which he had dedicated himself had not only failed, but destroyed his country. Shortly after his release from prison, his wife would leave him, and in 1951, he would move back in with his father. 1952, unable to hold down a job, Sebastian Wimmer would kill himself at the age of 50. Kurt Schrader, the officer who was wounded and was walking on a cane, well, he technically should have been brought up on charges as well, right? Remember, he had committed war crimes in Eastern Europe. But every prisoner signed a statement together uh, saying that he had defended them and stayed with them throughout the entire battle. And as a result of this statement, he was released after a very short period in a POW camp. 
He would go to work as a bricklayer before eventually getting a job as a government bureaucrat in the early 1950s. He and his wife remained happily married, and he would live long enough to see his grandchildren. As for Sepp Gangle, before returning to his unit, Captain Lee would deliver Gangle's body personally to the local church in Itter Village. After a local funeral, he was buried in a public cemetery in Virgil. And there is now a street in Virgil named in his honor. He is considered an Austrian national hero for his work with the resistance and his defense of the civilians. All three of these men grappled for a time with what it meant to be German. For some, cowardice or revenge were the only way out. But for others, it was to protect their homes and their families and the prisoners and civilians for whom they were responsible. The actions of people like Joseph Gangle in the final days of the war, those honorable actions helped to pave the way for a new Germany. And that's why it's relevant. Thanks for sticking around, folks. As promised, after this particular episode, I do have a special message, and that message is that I am launching a Patreon account. That's right. If you love relevant history, you can support my podcast by sending me a few bucks every month. Now, right now, I don't have any tiers set up. I don't have any special rewards. I'm hoping for somebody to send me a message saying, hey, here's what I'd like, but if that doesn't happen, here's kind of what I'm thinking. Anybody who starts by subscribing at $5, whenever I do introduce tiers, you'll get a free upgrade to whatever the next tier is. So say uh, all patrons get access to some kind of special chat, which I haven't developed yet, but say that happens. Well, you'd get access to that, but say there's like a $10 tier where you get a free t-shirt or something. Well, if you subscribe now, then you will get whatever that second tier reward ends up being in the future. I realize this is a dubious proposition, but if you do like what you hear and you want to support more of what you're hearing, consider subscribing. Uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash Podcast. That's Dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast. Or just go to Patreon and search for Dan Toller, T-O-L-E-R, and you'll find it. And if you don't want to, you know, send me money every month, geez, that's fine. Just subscribe to the show. You can subscribe 
anywhere that you already listen to your favorite podcasts. Relevant History is available on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. It's also available on Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Deezer, Stitcher, Audible, Player FM, and several others which I'm sure I have forgotten to mention. But if you have a favorite podcast app, chances are it's on there. If you don't like podcast apps, don't worry. The show is also on YouTube at Relevant History. That's R-E-L-E-V-A-N-T History. You'll see the same logo you see for the podcast. It is very easy to find. And, you know, if you have any ideas or thoughts about the show or criticism, or you have a suggestion for a future topic, why not shoot me a line? You can reach me on Twitter at Dan Toller Podcast. That's Dan T O L E R Podcast. Or alternatively, you could find me on Facebook at guess what? Dan Toller. Not Dan Toller Podcast. It's just Dan Toller on Facebook. And if you just want to get everything straight from the horse's mouth, go on to dantollerpodcast.com. That's Dan T O L E R Podcast.com. And you'll see all my episodes, all my subscription links, and my blog, which may or may not get updated eventually at some point in the future. Finally, I can also be reached at Dan Toller Podcast. That's Dan T O L E R Podcast at gmail.com. Always happy to hear from you, and thanks for listening.